Welcome to Game Talk Radio, your hosts, Greg and Jen, bringing you their take on this week's hottest gaming news. Thank you once again for that intro, Steve, and welcome everybody to episode four. Four. It's been a whole month already we've been doing this. Oof. Episode four of Game Talk Radio. Thank you everybody for listening as always. Um, you can... If, if you know Wisconsin weather, or some of you listening are from Wisconsin, it's getting a bit cold. A little chilly. A little cold. I sometimes wish we had a camera in here so you could <laughs> see right now. <laughs> We're like in, in, in the studio, quote unquote the studio, which is my office, which is my game room, uh, which is no sunlight's allowed in here. No. And it's in a, it's in a, like a half basement sort of situation. So it stays nice and cool. But unfortunately, this time of year, it's very cool. It's very, very chilly. It's very cool. So we have a uh, like a huge microfiber blanket just like covering us both up. <laughs> <laughs> and then Jen had to show me the clip from... Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Because we kind of looked a little like monks. <laughs> we didn't have any two-by-fours to hit ourselves in the head. No, none of that. <laughs> um, so, but anyway, well, again, welcome everybody to episode four, and let's get rolling. So I feel like every week... We're talking about a lawsuit. Yeah. It's every week. So apparently all people are going to think that that's all we care about. And we're looking through the news stories and just every week there's some new lawsuit happening. All right. I don't know. <laughs> well, this this week's is PlayStation 3 owners can file claims in a class action lawsuit uh, that has to do with Linux. Um, what I found, there, there was a, a um, article on Polygon that talked about how... There's this lawsuit called In Regards to Sony PS3 Other OS or Operating System Litigation that's been working its way through the courts. Yeah, for a very long time, yes. Uh, for more than six years, quite honestly. Uh, long story short, you, you were able to set aside part of the PS3's hard drive and install Linux on that partition, but then PlayStation or Sony... Uh, sent through an update in April 2010 that removed that feature. So you couldn't have Linux on that installed on that machine. Yeah, it was a big deal back then. I remember when the PS3 came out, they were like, look, you can install Linux on it and not really do anything with it. But back then, Sony was really trying to do a lot of interesting stuff. Like they wanted it, you know, the cell processor was being used by the Air Force to power supercomputers and Ooh. all this. And, like, one of these things was like, oh, there's 20 PS3s powering <laughs> some supercomputer somewhere. And you're like, uh. But they also did some really neat stuff. I can't remember the name of it, but there was, like, there was a, uh, it was some sort of app where you could connect to it through your PS3. And it was collectively the power you could leave your ps3 on and mm -hmm. collectively the power of your ps3 was searching for like they were breaking down oh gosh i should look Are it you up about seti no i don't think so like alien wavelengths no no it was it was radio? about it was breaking down like the human genome or something where it was trying to find like a possible cure for something like was it, it was the human genome project it might have been actually <laughs> I, I don't know unfortunately i should have see i wasn't expecting to go into that um so I should have done some more homework on that. Well, if you want, I can talk a little bit more about the lawsuit if you want to yeah, look through that. Yeah, why don't you do that? But what it came, kind of boiled down to is that anybody who purchased a fat PS3, and that's actually how they refer to the console in the lawsuit, a fat PS3. Which is great. I, that, <laughs> that makes me so happy because I call PS3s fat on a daily basis at work. So it's like, oh, do you want a slim PS3 or a fat old school PS3? And, and then, so it's great that in an official document before a court a of law mm -hmm. in the United States of America, it's a fat PS3. It's a fat PS3. But if you bought one between November 1st, 2006 and April 1st, 2010, you're eligible to participate in the settlement. Um, but obviously, you know, Sony's not admitting to any wrongdoing because from their perspective, they didn't do anything wrong. But you're eligible to get some money. And according to this article if you're in consumer class b you're eligible for a whopping nine dollars and if you're part of the consumer class a you're eligible to receive a whopping 55 dollars so not bad you can go submit a claims form but that's pretty much it yeah so this is dumb i hate class action lawsuits i think it's really frustrating because a bunch of lawyers make a bunch of money and then they split what's left between all of the consumers. So class B is basically for the people that 
can prove that they had a fat PS3. <laughs> <laughs> the old so fat one. They can prove that they had the old fat boy and that they have their PSN ID and they give that and they get $9. But if you can somehow prove that you used the other OS option, then you get $55. But when you think it, think about it, though, Sony sold something like 13 million PlayStation 3s before uh, November 2010, which was only seven months. If everybody filed to be part of even the most basic, the, the class B, that's nine times 13 and a half million dollars. I mean, that's... That's a lot. <laughs> right, right, which which is a small chunk of it, and, the re- and this huge chunk goes to the lawyers. It's so frustrating. And so anyway, uh, I found what I was looking for. So it was called Folding at Home. Folding. And so what it was, it actually was very similar to that SETI that you were talking about. Yes. And so what it talks about is it's it allows uh, scientists to study protein folding. Uh, and so they basically used all your your PS3, you could leave it on, and it would take collectively all your your You were basically processing a chunk of the information and sending it back to the medical research. Right. The way that SETI worked, uh, for those of you that don't know, it stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial... Extraterrestrial... Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. It's a project at least, gosh, 15 years ago, if you you downloaded a screensaver, and it that screensaver would actually process the information, and the next time you connect to the internet, because that was before we had Wi-Fi, you would <laughs> send that information back to the SETI Institute, which oh, that's is cool. really, really cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. I never knew anything like mm-hmm. that existed. I would have had that on 24-7. <laughs> I think uh, a lot of people did. <laughs> the uh, the PS3 folding at home, these simulations were helping doctors discover how to treat and prevent diseases like diseases like cancer, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. So that was so it was really neat. So anyway, my point with all that was saying Sony was doing some really unique and interesting things back then. And one of the things was having this other OS option, which was a way to install Linux Linux on your PS3 and do some funky stuff. So it's kind of cool that Sony was being really strange with some of these things, but they were, you know, the, the whole thing with the PS3 was it wasn't a video game machine. It was a multimedia device. It was a home computer. Repl- like that was their shtick, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so that's what they were pitching it as. So they did all these really interesting things, other OS being one of them. Mm-hmm. And then through the course of the PS3 being uh, broken, j- uh, jailbroken, uh, you know, a lot like iPhones where they unlock mm-hmm. it and they get access to whatever they want. You can uh, install, you know, emulators onto. You can do whatever you want with it. It busts it wide open. And so, in Sony's battle against that, they removed that as a feature. And so, a lot of people, I think, rightfully so, were a, had a bit of an uproar. Most people that use that option were only using it to mod the PS3. But there were some legitimate people out there. Now, the lawsuit is essentially because the people made the argument that you can't advertise something, make us buy it, and then take it away. Yeah. And I think that's very fair, even though I don't think very many people were going to use that option, if ever. But it was something that they talked about and that they pulled out later. And the fact that they pulled it out after a consumer bought it. It wasn't right. like you could something you could opt into. You know, it's almost like if you bought a bought a car and you paid all this money for a really nice radio, and then after like a month... Like, you know, this radio... And they ripped off the yeah, radio? Yeah, and they come and they take your radio out, <laughs> and then they leave you there, and you're like, well, wait a minute. I wasn't... I radio. didn't think it was that yeah, bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wasn't using it every day. I was, like, listening to my iPod, but I still... It was still my car radio, you know? Exactly, and that's a really good spin on that. But I'm kind of in the same boat with you in regards to class action lawsuits, because sometimes it's it's one person or a large group of people normally that spearhead this type of of litigation and i mean there was that one that was a couple years ago with red bull where they claimed red bull doesn't give you wings and this is (laughs) it was this nightmare and it, it was how how can anybody prove at any point they bought red bull and get like the 30 cents back it was just ridiculous and i just didn't even bother because i yeah i had bought red bull in a 10 year time frame Mostly drinking with vodka. (laughs) But I wasn't going to putz around and trying to figure out how I was going to get a couple bucks back. So GameStop had a class action lawsuit against it a few years ago as well. And that lawsuit came from... They 
they would display their games by opening a copy of the game and putting it on the shelf. Mm -hmm. So they would open the game, they would take the insides out, which I believe they probably still do today. I'd have to check with John. I haven't worked there now for five and a half years. So what we would do is they'd want you to make a big display. So they'd say, oh, face out 20 copies of Madden Football. Well, they wouldn't give us box art for that. So we would open 20 copies of the game, take the insides out, store them. They Mm -hmm. weren't played. And then when someone would buy that last copy, they would bring up an empty case. We would put the game inside the case and give it to them. Okay. So there was a class action lawsuit because a few people were kind of upset by that. Because and it was because they were to them it was to them it was not new. It was used oh. because of the seal was broken. Mm-hmm. Now I think in in my not love of defending GameStop, I don't think they were necessarily wrong here, but I think they should have discounted the games that they had to open to display, even if it was $3 or something. Just You have to do something because it's not the same as a sealed copy. But couldn't, I mean, this is all hindsight, but you would think that a store like that, with as many stores as they have, can afford to have... Um, uh, several hundred empty cases and they send their employees the box art and then they shimmy it into the case and then use that for display. Which they did start doing, like, in my in my last few months to year there, they were doing stuff like that. Like, they'd send you, you know, 10 box art for this, but then your district manager comes in and says, well, I want this whole wall to scream Madden football. And like, <laughs> okay, well, I have 10 boxes. Is 10 boxes enough to scream it? And he looks at you like and says no. So you say okay, and so you start gutting copies because what else are you gonna Oy. do? And a part of that also originated from a very controversial policy that GameStop has. It's their checkout policy. So personally, I loved it. Working there was great because they would let you take games home. Okay. You could straight up just take a new game home, mm-hmm. try it out, play it for a couple days, and then bring it back. Oh, so that you could actually say, "I've played yeah. it and it's it, great." It was it was a, it was an educational program for the employees, so we could help sell the mm-hmm. games better. It was a it was a product thing. However, you could take a new game home, play it, bring it back, you put it in the case, and you sell it as new still. Oh, yeah, that's it, a little... It was really bad. No, it was really bad. And so it got so bad to a point where I didn't think that was right. So at my store, we would I would not allow my employees to check out new games. They could only check out pre-owned copies of games when they came in. That makes sense. Uh, and it was just one of those things because I just felt morally it was wrong. And, and it wouldn't have been wrong if you took five bucks off the price of the game. If you're going to sell it that way, you just take five bucks off. But anyway, so they had a class action lawsuit. The whole point of the story, I was really dragging this on now. The whole point of the story is that there was a class action lawsuit against GameStop, and you know how they settled it? Everyone who bought a new game between, like, 2005 and 2009 or whatever the years were got $5 off a game. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> which which would have covered the fact that they would have sold it at a pre-owned price now, almost. But it doesn't matter if you bought 100 games from them in that five-year period. Oh, it was just... You got $5. Oh, man. If you could just prove that... Because that's what you joined it to. But, you know, there were a bunch of lawyers that I'm sure got a big fat payout from GameStop. It's so stupid. Like, class action lawsuits are, are just the biggest rip on the consumer. And a lot of times you can opt out of them. Like, if a class action lawsuit lawsuit starts, you can say, I want to opt out so I can choose to um, sue them later. Sure. But what are you going to do? Are you going to go to Sony and pay a lawyer and do all... No, it's not going to happen. And that's why a lot of the times they are class action lawsuits, because it's strength in numbers and it's paying all those legal fees. But you're right. Yeah. It's... It's a lot of the time the money going to the lawyers, and not always the case, but, you know, a lot of the times it's true. And, yeah, and, you know, yay for lawsuits. I don't know. (laughs) Well, there's another lawsuit story for everybody, so hopefully next week we can go a week without a lawsuit story. Let's hope so. All right, our next story is that PC game developers, specifically those that are making Shadow Warrior 2, recently told Kotaku that anti-piracy technology would actually make their games worse. Yeah, this is great. How does that work? (laughs) This is great. So DRM is a pain in the butt for everybody. Which stands for Digital Rights Management. Digital Rights Management, yep. So DRM is a pain in the butt. It's just annoying. And so these guys who make games come right out and say, you know, DRM's really abrasive. We're not going to do it. It's it's because what you're doing, and I actually this is what I've said in the past, and it was so refreshing to read a developer say this. But the developer saying, it's a hindrance on the paying customer. All you're doing is you're punishing the people that are paying for your product legitimately. Mm-hmm. You're punishing them. So your customers then start to realize kind of what we talked about 
a few episodes ago when we were talking about emulation and stuff, mm-hmm. and we were talking about how iTunes is so successful and Steam is so success, Valve is so successful with Steam because they make it so easy and so accessible to the customer. Uh, the studio behind Witcher Three is CD Projekt Red, and they there's a their parent company uh, owns a website called GOG.com, which stands for Good Old Games.com. Mm. It's an awesome site. You can buy all these old games from like the 80s and 90s. They put them on there, DRM free. So oh. you basically just get the EXE file in a folder, and you could share it to a hundred people if you want. You could share it to two thousand people, and they they don't care. But the games are cheap. And they've got a library so you can re-download anytime you want. And it's really effective and convenient. So when things are effective and convenient, we'll pay for it. If it's if it's the right price and it's easy to get, we're going to pay for it. Look at all the people that buy music on iTunes when it's you can get any song you want for free at your fingertips in seconds. Even with services like Spotify and stuff like that, which isn't you know illegal or anything. Well, and there's there's a colleague of, of theirs called uh, Christoph, who goes by Chris Narkovitz, who says, we don't support piracy, but currently there isn't a good way to stop it without hurting the customers, which is what along what you had said. We would spend money to make a worse version for our legit customers, and it's he likens this DRM to being warning screens on movies that you've purchased. Now, I get it, mm-hmm. but... It wasn't until I read later in this article from Kotaku that said, we prefer spending resources on making our games the best possible in terms of quality rather than spending time and money on putting some protection that won't work anyway. And I think that's really the basis of the argument that really clicked with me because I said, well, how could it make his game worse by putting in all this anti-piracy stuff? But because they have to put the anti-piracy stuff in there, it downgrades the quality of the game because they have to support it, they have to test it and make sure that it works, and that's a lot of time and resources and energy for something that maybe won't really solve the problem. Yeah, exactly, and there's there's well-known cases of games having issues with the DRM, so people who legitimately buy the game go to these websites, they download the hacks and like the CD cracks (laughs) to play their legitimately purchased games without the stupid DRM. And some things like when SimCity came out, oh, it's a couple years back now, the new SimCity came out and you had to be connected online to play it. You had to be. It's a totally single player game. Like you can, I believe you can do things where you can go to other people's cities or you could see them or something. I don't remember. The game was not good anyway, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I but I couldn't believe it. Um, Jared was talking about that. You know, he played it and he and he has a really really funny video on it. I'm pretty sure it was uh, just you know he he just blasted it, and the servers were down like the first week the game was out. Oh. And so people were like, well, just deactivate the thing that says you have to play it online. And and EA was like, you can't, we can't, we can't. It's a core of the game. We can't do anything about it. A couple weeks later, well, we're gonna patch out the thing that says <laughs> you have course. to be online. If it was even a couple weeks, it might have been a couple days. It wasn't even that long. It's so frustrating. At least they didn't try to persist that and say, no, 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 you need the internet, you need to be connected. Because some companies would do that if it really, they felt like it was absolutely crucial for you to be connected to the internet in order to play this. Now, something like The Sims, I mean, I haven't played it in many, 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 many Mm -hmm. years, but... I don't think there's really a co-op mode for Sims, is there? So why no. do you need to be connected to the internet? Yeah. <laughs> you download no a patch when the patch comes y- out. You don't. <laughs> there, the new Need for Speed game that came out uh, on Xbox One and PS4, it requires you to be online in a totally single-player experience. Makes no sense. And that doesn't. It doesn't. And some, some forms of DRM are really frustrating so then and you've got big companies so you've got ea has origin which is their download service where you have to download their stupid program that's always constantly updating you ever notice that like when i turn my computer to play wow it's always origin pops up it's like hey you want to update i'm like i just wish you'd just go Go away away. (laughs) (laughs) and so origin's there and then you have to download you have to download games through origin kind of like the blizzard launcher Mm -hmm. to be fair but the blizzard launcher is not abrasive at all and it auto, you know, but the well, origin Well, and it pain. lets you, with Blizzard's interface, it lets you play after a certain amount of time, even though it's still downloading in the background. Well, yeah, and, and you can even, you can make shortcuts to the individual games, too. Like, I still have a shortcut to World of Warcraft on my desktop that takes me right to the login. But 
so then you've got that you've got Uplay, which is Ubisoft's, and that is just a horrible pile. It just it never works. It's just it's frustrating. It always freezes and locks up on you. And and those are extra programs you have to one download, and then two you have to run in the background while trying to play other games. It's just so annoying. And so it was just nice though. It was it was nice to read developers finally understanding where we're coming from as customers. Cause I kind of feel like sometimes they've got a tough job. You know, trying to please us is very difficult. Yeah. Because you know, we have high expectations and we have low tolerance for failure. But I feel like sometimes some developers take it too far then and they're so worried about the bottom dollar and being successful as they forget that the whole reason they're successful is because we buy their stuff. Mm-hmm. So you still got to get us a good product and you got to get it to us at a right price in the right way. So we buy it. So in your opinion, what would be the perfect anti-piracy technology? I think the best anti-piracy technology isn't technology at all. It's pro-consumerism. So by that, I mean that you have good policies in place, you have a fair price, and you make a quality product. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. People are always going to steal it. That, that, that's without question. But more people will buy it. I remember when the used game argument was just in full force at the beginning of the PS3 life cycle again. And we were talking about, you know, there were people talking about, you know, I don't remember what company it was. They were mad about people buying used games. It was some company that didn't make a very good game. And then I was talking about games like Skyrim. So Skyrim, when it first came out, I didn't have a used copy at the store for almost a month or two. Mm -hmm. My first used copy took almost two months because that game was awesome. You make good software, you make it at a fair price that's worth it, and people, they'll keep it, you know, Mm -hmm. as far as used game goes, and and they'll go buy it right away. Same thing with DRM. They're not going to pirate it if it's easier to get legit. So that's good fair. pro-consumerism, that's it. Just treat your customers like people. And just just remember that, you know, like me, I, I look at my customers every day and I'm so thankful for them. And I'm just like, well, I wouldn't be here for you. Sometimes customers thank me. I'm like, oh my gosh, don't thank me. Thank you so I can exist. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think sometimes game developers get so wrapped up in their business that they forget to thank us for allowing them to exist. And I know that sounds really conceited maybe. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not sitting on a high horse. It's just, it's the truth of it. You got to treat us right. You know, don't manipulate us. Just treat us like adults. Treat us like mm-hmm. intelligent consumers like and we'll peers, buy your stuff. Like yeah. peers. Treat us like peers. Because, Let us in on it, you know? You know, and that's that's all you can really ask for is really just to be able to have a voice and to be able to voice your opinion and have your opinion taken into consideration. It's not that a developer or a set of developers is going to have to do everything any consumer wants, but just to react to it, have an answer for it, and be able to answer yep. for it as well. And and have you just back up what you're doing and have reasonable reasons why you're doing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all we ask for. Well, speaking of compromises... <laughs> oh, here comes the sad story of <laughs> the day. Here's my segue. Cuphead is now shooting for a mid-2017 release. Now, for those of you that don't know, Cuphead is a game, it's really really neat it's very 1930s style cartoon it's so beautiful this game i want to play this so bad i've been waiting to play this for years there's a demo i remember when you showed me the demo of the gameplay which is like a co-op boss battle and it's fantastic it it looks like it just stepped out of a 1930s like steamboat willy cartoon with the long uh, like over exaggerated movements but still really fluid. You know you know how I you know how you can know that I'm really excited for this game? Hmm. It's not coming out on PS4. It's only coming out to PC and Xbox 1 and I still want to buy it day 1. <laughs> I won't I won't even wait the time it'll come to PS4. I'm I'm going to buy it right away. But I, what I liked about the article, this is another Polygon article. There's a quote from the co-founder Chad Moldenhauer who said, you know, throughout 2016, we talked about reducing our scope for the game in order to get it released by 2016, but they made that difficult decision to delay the launch in order, as he says, to ship with our vision intact. I appreciate that because I do work in the IT industry doing um, project development, but I get where they're coming from. You want your whole scope. And narrowing that scope is really difficult, or removing things from the scope is very difficult. I appreciate that they're willing to sacrifice their deadline in order to make their vision complete. 
doesn't make the fans excited. Right. <laughs> but at least from the the responses or comments on this article, people are more than willing to wait. They've waited long anyway, and it's just a matter of waiting a little longer. I try not to get disappointed at delays because they're 99% of the time they're for good reasons. Mm-hmm. And if they're taking extra time to make the game better, I'm all for it. I'm disappointed because I very much want to play the game, but I have no problem with delays in games. It, it, it makes sense. Push the game back. Make it the way you want it. Be happy with it. Don't rush out garbage because if you rush it out and it's got bugs or it's incomplete or <clears throat> things are missing from the game that you said were going to be in the game, <laughs> that <laughs> to me, <laughs> that to me is a worse offense than a delay. Now, delays hurt them more than they hurt us because they they can't make any money on this thing until it goes for sale. They only have so much a publisher is willing to do for them. They have to hit milestones. If they're even getting milestone payments from a publisher, they might be fully independent funded until this comes out. Sure. So I don't... But if you haven't heard of this game, it's called Cuphead. And it, like Jen was saying, it looks awesome. It's so it, cool. The trailer for it is straight up, like she was saying, like a 1930s Steamboat Willie cartoon and it's just rad. I mean, and the, the color scheme they use is this kind of faded, washed-out color a little bit. And the animations, it's not even just the, 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 the style. It's the animations. Everything just looks like right. it's from that era. And it's so cool. I mean, this game's going to be great. And it plays like a classic uh, horizontal shooter. So think your you know, Life Force or Gradius or whatever, but then imagine that with a beautiful, just old-timey cartoon right. feel to it, it. It feels like it's got cell shading. It's got that stationary t- type of backdrop that looks watercolor almost, but it stays kind of the same, but then the cell movement on top, I mean, it's very antique or, or, yeah. or vintage-looking um, animation. It's it's fantastic. As soon as I saw this, I couldn't believe that it was a game. It yeah. looked like a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a great one, and it's co-op, so we're going to play that together. Oh, hell yeah! So, And I'd rather they delay it than go into, say, infinite crunch time. Yes. Leading us into the story of the week. Story so the main of the story of the, uh, of the week is Amy Hennig, uh, Henning, uh, she's the ex-producer. She worked on the Uncharted series at Naughty Dog. And she, this broke late Thursday last week, so technically it's last week's news, but we had already set the podcast in motion, so we didn't get to cover it. And she says, she, in her own words, she says, AAA not being worth the sacrifices she had to make personally. Mm-hmm. And so she dis, she talks about this, and I'm going to let you have a, a bunch of this, because sure. you'll, you understand this a lot from your, your field of work. But basically, she talks about how it's, it's crunch mode. Well, why don't you explain that first? Why don't you tell me what, like, crunch time is? Okay, sure. Um, it sounds horrible. I, I mean, quite honestly, in here it says she said that on average, she didn't know if she ever worked less than 80 hours a week. Now, 80 hours a week, to me, it has to include weekends. There's no yeah. way around it. I mean, even if, I mean, if you were working 12-hour days, that's... Oh my gosh, I can't do math. It, well, well, when I worked at, when I first opened Game Trade, I was working by myself and I was open six days a week and I was open 10 to 8 every day. So I'd usually get there around 9.30 and I'd stay there till 8.30. So 11 hour days, six days a week. So I was working 66 hours a week mm-hmm. and that's still 14 less right. than what she claimed she worked on average. It's at least, at least 12 hours a day. Yeah. Including weekends in there. And she said that, you know, I maybe would have a day off here and there, but never an extended yeah. vacation where you couldn't actually leave work. And that is so draining on a person's mentality, on their gung-ho-ness. Mm-hmm. It, you, you risk a lot of burnout when you do yeah. it like that. Thankfully, with the way that our organization worked is that there is a little bit of a lull in the development phase um, for each area because it's like, well, as soon as, like, once the developers are done, they get a little bit of a breather because they're just um, going to be working on things that maybe don't work. So they get, okay, well, this doesn't work. So they go and they fix it. But it's not wall-to-wall-to-wall-to-wall-to-wall work. They could be starting the next thing or reviewing the next project that they're going to be working on. 
I just, I can't imagine persisting that way for 10 and a half years. That, that's actually really impressive. When I first opened Game Trade, I was going to do seven days a week. And I, 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 so I had that thought in my head. I did it for a week. The first week I was open, I did seven days. And I realized I don't even have time to do my laundry. Right. There's just, you have no time to do anything. You know, you need at least, at least one day to like unwind, you know? And for me, it's a little different, I guess, because I was in customer service. And so this goes back to some, some anxiety issues and stuff, but like you talk to people all day long sometimes. And you know, we've, we've talked about this before. Like sometimes I just need to be quiet. Mm -hmm. I need to have just a quiet time where I'm just like, I'm not, I can just like slow my brain down and just kind of, you know, step out. And I think what you're talking about with your company is very similar to how game development used to be. Mm-hmm. So you'd have a game come out and then you're, you're the same studio is going to work on their next game. So, of course, right as it's coming out, testing gets really heavy near the end. And then but the early guys like the art guys and the concept guys, well, they don't really have much to do when you're at 99 percent done with the game. So they're already starting on the next project. Sure. They're doing their concept, but they had a time where it was like, okay, now I can just kind of casually whip together some things, get ready so that well, when... you familiarize yourself with the material, yeah. especially with game development, it's you look at storyboards and, and the storyline and, and get a feel for what the game is. Sometimes I would imagine that they might not have an idea of what the end is going to be. So maybe they have to figure that out. I don't know much about game development in terms of how it works from a project perspective, but every every company that utilizes or does software development, it runs pretty much the same way with the life cycle. There's a planning, a testing, and a release. Or I'm sorry, I skipped a step. A planning, a development, a testing, and a release yeah. to the production environment. Every company does that. Um, I can't imagine it'd be any different, but this seems to be so much more constricted and so much more stress-inducing. I'm so surprised that she stayed and did that for ten well, and a half years. And and look at look at how games are different now. So in the past, a game would come out and it was finished. So you'd have some time before you decide to jump back in and start working on your part of the sequel. So usually after a project launched, you'd be able to be like, whew, everybody sit back, you know, congratulate yourselves, Mm -hmm. take some vacation time, catch up, you know, and then come back to work ready to go. But now you've got games that as soon as they come out, they have day one patches. So up to the day that that game comes out, the people are still working diehard, even though the game's gone what they call gone gold which means it's being physically printed. The, the final version sure. is getting onto disc. And then that happens a couple weeks to a month before release because it needs time to ship and you know mm-hmm. get packaged and all that sort of stuff. And then those people are working super hard on a day one patch so that any problems that they basically ship the game with known problems mm-hmm. and then fix the game problems in that last month that they have after the game goes live. That's why every single game has a day one patch in case anyone's wondering. So now you've got that, and then you've got games that do DLC. So as soon as that day one patch is done, you're already rolling into this crunch time of, well, we got to get working on this first downloadable content, or what do, what do we have here? And I think what you get is you get a nonstop cycle of always being in crunch. So then you're working on this thing. You finally get the DLC done, and now it's time to start working. Oh, we're already a month or two behind on the sequel. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. So, okay, so I better start cranking to get caught up. And then all of a sudden, 10 years go by, and apparently for 10 years she's been working 80 hours a week with taking a day off here and there, but for 10 years, like doing that for a year, even I can understand that, you know, I I only got one day off a week and I did that for two and a half years working to build something. But what, what worries me about this is, is this because the game industry is considered a creative field. It's like artistry, you know, it's not, it's not a technical degree necessarily. It's, it's almost artistic. Some of it's technical with the programming and stuff, but for the most part, it's considered an artistic degree, the design part of it and stuff like that. So are they are they only bringing on individuals who are willing to sacrifice all that because of their passion? So it's almost it, to me it's almost them taking advantage of these people who are very passionate about the projects they work on cuz when I worked at GameStop I was never passionate about any project I worked on. So there there was no they couldn't keep, you know, borderline abusing me if uh you know when it comes to like working me this hard i never worked 80 hours a week there but if i ever had to there would be nothing there keeping me but to her this was her baby like this game was hers so what was she supposed to do just just abandon it well 
exactly. I mean, you you bring up a really good point. I I mean, I've worked at the company that I've worked at for ten years. I can't imagine working that type of life lifestyle. Essentially, it becomes a lifestyle. I can't imagine doing that for the entire tenure of working at the organization that I work at. It's completely. It's an unwinning battle. You can't win because, like you said, when you've got this sort of well, you know, we can just put that in the day one patch. You start to make sacrifices and start to do things a little differently than you would if you had to have it prepackaged, ready to yeah. go. Oh, yeah. It also shows that between that very short time span of getting the game to print and putting it on the shelves, people are working nonstop. Yeah. Yeah, and I think... It, cause, so she makes a comment about how triple a development is an arms race that is unwinnable. And I think this is really interesting because I've had a theory for a while and a lot of people have anticipated a triple a game crash where the cost of triple a games is getting so high that they, you can't maintain the sales numbers to make a lot of those games profitable. Only the biggest franchises will be profitable. Your call of duties and your Maddens and your battlefields and your assassins creeds, but you won't have, None, no middleman will be able to to make a game that's not an indie game. Now, over the last five to ten years, we've had the what I call the indie revolution, which is awesome, bringing us tons of small-time games and great stuff like that. I think that has prevented the AAA crash quite a bit because now we've got a lot of other choices. A lot of those studio heads can leave to start their own projects. It's not like it used to be where either you're AAA or there's no other option. Well, and this is the first time I... And I don't really know the the language of game development but i had never heard triple a development before so what actually makes something a triple a development project typically triple a is associated with scope and cost so you would say that a triple a game is a game you're going to sell retail for the 59.99 price tag okay and cost x amount of money to make that's interesting though because some games are considered triple a just because they're from a studio of a certain size like it's not uniform necessarily but it reflects a certain quality expectation okay. of the game so that's if someone fair. if someone really say like like no man's sky would technically be considered a triple a title because it was a 60 dollar game made by a studio of 20 people or whatever mm-hmm. uh so that that gets held under the same scrutiny as call of duty would and that's why i made that comment about how it was a really good $20 indie game because if it was a $20 indie game, you overlook a lot of those things and it's not AAA. So. But that that's typically what AAA means is it just kind of means the big dog. So your $60, okay. your, your, $100, your $100 million games, including advertising budgets, the stuff you see on TV commercials, stuff like that. And then everything else, it's funny because then a lot of people refer to any game that's cheap as like an indie game. <laughs> so you're just kind of like indie even though it's not accurate at all. But I mean, quite honestly knowing what I know about having the crunch, having the stress of getting a deadline done and doing everything and anything you can think of, I I can't even imagine the amount of sacrifice that went into getting a game like Uncharted on the market. It's yeah. it, it it was an amazing game. It's an amazing game to watch and the play of that game is just baller yeah that game is amazing and and one of the things she mentions here is that she talks about how the split of naughty dog into two teams created some hardships so what she's saying is there became a point where they split into two teams so they could make twice as many games but they split into two teams they didn't hire twice as many people so you split into two teams and that's where you basically your concept artist as soon as he's done with that game he rolls right into the next game Mm -hmm. and then as soon as that game's done he rolls right into the next game so he's non-stop going and going and going which conceptually like a concept artist that's probably still difficult but he's in the early stages can you imagine the people at the end of that the 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 qa guys oh my gosh if you're if you're linking like game after game after game you're working 12 hour days six day weeks all the time trying to find every bug and then as soon as that game comes out you're testing it post release especially with the online features and everything now and the patches and the dlc and then as soon as you're done with that game number two that they've been working on Mm -hmm. for a year and a half you have to go into early phase of testing you know because when i worked at gamestop they had a they had a vacation blackout 
from November till January. Oh, sure. So because we're a big retail store, we were I, I was a big retail. I'm not there anymore, clearly. Because I was a big retail store that was so busy during the holidays, you could not take vacation between November and January because that was Christmas time. They didn't want you to take vacation and spend time with your family on Christmas. And no, stuff. of course not. But it was the busy time, so that was the expectation. What do you think the blackout dates are like for those guys? Do you think there's like a, a period where after launch they get like one week where they can take a week off? Could you imagine working a job where you were only allowed to take the third week of August off every year or something? It would you know? be terrible, and I can't imagine... Like, the people that stuck it out, as you mentioned before, must be and are just so passionate about what they do that it keeps them there despite all of this stress and pressure and got to get it done, got to get it done, got to get it done. Yeah. Because the people who don't have it 120% a belief in what they're doing, they're going to bail. Yeah, and and that's what I worry about is so then these companies essentially are taking advantage of people's passion. And and yeah. that's the big companies. And I say that as Naughty Dog's a developer I love. And they make really great products. And to be fair, now I believe she was on the story for Uncharted Four and she was like let go and pulled off that project before it was finished. Right. So there is possibility that she has some ill will towards Naughty Dog and how that situation ended. So, like, we don't know anything about that. But she wasn't really blasting Naughty Dog. Like, she was just saying that AAA development in general is, like, a pain. And I don't know how there's not massive burnout. But I guess you do kind of see that because you do see a lot of AAA developers, guys who run these studios, breaking off and starting a new studio of five to ten guys and they start making indie games. Right. It's almost like they're going, they're hitting the reset button and going back to what was fun for them, the creation side and getting out of the the horrible side but of course less security that way there so. is less security but it's really if it's your passion i mean that's why they have the term starving artist yeah. you know because it's if you do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life that sort of mentality sure. but just completely skewed because then it becomes work and it's not fun right. anymore and that's that, I mean, I do freelance graphic design. I would never want a graphic design job because it, then it becomes work. Yeah, it would kind of kill the fun. And it's not fun anymore. Yeah. And I can see that that would be reason number one for an independent developer now why they got out of something like AAA development because it became a job and well, it wasn't fun. That's like this. You know, we do this for free, but as soon as this podcast blows up and we start making millions of dollars, it's going to be so boring. So It's like, like we're not going to want to do it anymore because we have so much money. Like, we want to know what to do with it all. <laughs> we want to have money. Oh. I just wouldn't want creepers in yeah, an so. elevator with me. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yeah, so, wow. It, it's kind of a neat... It is neat to see inside, you know, to see behind the curtain if you will, to some of this, you know, game development. And it's not all sunshine and rainbows. And I think a lot of people that want to make games for a living don't realize some of the hardships that go in. Besides it being difficult, besides all that stuff, the amount of selflessness you need to be able to dedicate that much time to it, that's rough. Oh, I give my, the developers that I work with and the testers that I, like everybody who's in the project management area, I give them so much credit because it does take a lot of drive sometimes to get those things yeah. done when you don't want to do it and wait you changed it again or what do you mean it doesn't work when you're faced with those sorts of things it's not a glamorous job it's not at nope. all nope <laughs> it's like being a quarterback like you you get all the credit when it works and you just get dumped on when you lose exactly you know? it's just it's no, you're, you're it's a rock really star true. you're a rock star or you're the worst uh-huh you know? But, you know, yeah, li li live by the sword, die by the sword. Mm -hmm. So listener questions. Listener we got listener questions. questions. We got a bunch of listener questions. And the first one we have to, we're following up from last week. Yes. Because we which, didn't get to it. Which was, what are our favorite game soundtracks? Would you like to begin? Oh, yes, I would. All right. Let's see. I would have to say I really love the original Legend of Zelda soundtrack, which is just the 8-bit kind of Classic. stuff. But outside of that, love Katamari Damacy's soundtrack. The original one. Not We Love Katamari, because <laughs> that one's not as good. 
the Katamari Damacy is definitely, in my opinion, classic. Plus, uh, Persona 4 is a really good set of soundtrack as well. I like that, Those too. are my answers. <laughs> Legend, uh, so for me, there's obvious classics. So you say stuff like Symphony of the Night. Symphony of the Night has one of the best soundtracks of any video game ever. It's this beautiful gothic, you know, symphony orchestra mm-hmm. music. Just beautiful. And that's as far, that's CD quality sound. So that's good. Think places like God of War has an excellent soundtrack. You know, th- those are great. Uh, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past for Super Nintendo oh. has got this is an awesome soundtrack. Yeah. But my favorite soundtrack, mm-hmm. and this is sound crazy because people who know this game will think, like, they'll, they'll know it if they listen to it, but it's not known as a great game. But the soundtrack's killer. It's Snake's Revenge which is the unauthorized non-canon sequel to Metal Gear that was mm-hmm. on the original Nintendo. That soundtrack is awesome. Konami on the NES and the Famicom, they just killed it. Whoever their sound designer was, I should probably know who that is since he's making all my favorite music. <laughs> he, he, the, the guys doing the work were just unbelievable. So a lot of people dog on Snake's Revenge. It's actually still a very fun game. It's just not canon when it comes to Metal Gear. But that soundtrack, oh, man, it's great. I, I would listen to that. I would put that on while playing games online mm-hmm. and you just, just listen to the whole soundtrack. It's great. That and then Metal Gear 2 for the MSX computer system, like those two metal, those two soundtracks are just, they're awesome. I could listen to them on repeat all the time. But, you know, and of course, I'm not canceling out great ones like Chrono Trigger has one of the best soundtracks around, too. Obviously, Final Fantasy VII. I mean, Final Fantasy's music has always been good. It's almost like I don't count them because everyone just knows that. That's (laughs) true. (laughs) Yeah, these are the top (laughs) ten that are already like everybody knows. These top tens will just skip all that stuff. But yeah, so if but if I had to pick my favorite, I would say Snake's Revenge. Snake's Revenge for the NES. Okay, Uh, Ryan asks, do you think Konami could possibly rebrand itself in a way that Square Enix has done? by becoming a mostly publishing company that only really works on their many franchise? Or is Konami doomed to fail after its over-reliance on the pachinko game? <laughs> so, so if anybody doesn't know, Konami, we've talked about them before, how they've kind of forgotten their franchises, like Silent Hill and Metal Gear. Well, they have kept those licenses and they've branded pachinko machines in japan with their so like this awesome trailer came out which looked like it was metal gear solid 3 in the metal gear solid 5 engine like Mm -hmm. it looked unbelievable and i was like oh my goodness what is this This is a remake of metal gear solid 3 (laughs) what oh my god and it's like you know a bunch of japanese comes up and then it's like it's pachinko machine i'm like what (laughs) what like we all just got so they, 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 they 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 boosted our dreams and then ripped them out in one fell swoop so to get to the question, I believe Konami is in the process of rebranding itself. I don't think it'll be like Square Enix has done where they're essentially more of a publisher. I think Konami is going the way of mobile. And so the question isn't, are they doomed to fail? The question is, are they going to be what we remember them as? And that's what it really is, the answer. Mm. So the answer really to that is no. But is Konami doomed to fail? I don't think so. I think that they will always be around in some way or another, but you saw this a lot in the 80s, actually. A lot of game companies were video game developers, and then they morphed into something else, and then they disappeared into oblivion. And some are still around. Some got bought by bigger companies. So I feel like Konami could do that. And what they'll do is every now and then they'll bust out their licenses for something. So, like, they might license, you know... The good thing about this is if they don't want to do anything in-house, you could, in the future, realistically see another Kojima Metal Gear game. If he has his other studio that's backed by Sony and Konami says, look, you can make, you can use our license if Sony ponies up the money and you pony up the time. And then Kojima's like, okay, you know, that that's totally possible. And that's more realistic than him still working there and making another one since they don't want to make those kind of games anymore. So, you know, but I don't think they're doomed as a company. I think they're doomed as a game developer for sure. Yeah. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Konami. Bye, Konami. Devin asks, who is your favorite assassin from Assassin's Creed? And what time period would you like to see the franchise explore? Hands down, favorite assassin from Assassin's Creed is Ezio Auditore. So he he was the um, the hero of Assassin's Creed 2, Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, and Assassin's Creed Revelations. And he's the most 
in my opinion, he's the most explored character. He had three full games to talk about his character. The ga- the character from the first uh, game, Altair, they brought his story back in Assassin's Creed Revelations, so you got to see more of his story. But you, but uh, Ezio, you literally see him from the moment of his birth. That's how Assassin's Creed 2 starts. Okay. Ask Jer about that sometime. Like, he stopped playing the game because it made him so uncomfortable. <laughs> Because there was like a birthday. He, he, he straight video? up was like, oh, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. <laughs> it was awesome. So that's my older brother, by the way. Hopefully he doesn't listen to this. But I'm not making fun of him. That's what he said. He's like, oh, it's like, oh I can't. I, I don't want to see that. <laughs> so anyway. Um, so, but you literally see him from his birth to his death. You oh, see wow. both. You that's see both. And, cool. and, and he, the way he goes on and you get... Without spoiling anything, like the end um, of Revelations has just a really cool moment where he dies at the end. You find his <laughs> resting place because Assassin's Creed. Do you know much about Assassin's Creed? Or? I don't. Okay, the, I've never really got into that game. Um, oh, I, it was just the wrong time for me. I think I mentioned this to you before because we were talking about going to see the movie when it comes yeah. out. The idea is that there's a machine that will take you back through your DNA, and you can relive your ancestors' memories. Right. So. Later, you essentially see like what happened to these characters since oh, you're all sure. essentially in the same. Gene Desmond is the character you're technically playing as, and Desmond goes back into his memories to play as Ezio and uh, Altair. So uh, Ezio, without a ha- without without a doubt, though, how he kind of goes, he you know he starts off being this kind of richy kind of oh I got this good family, and then the stuff hits the fans. He gets recruited into the Assassin's Order, and then he messes up stuff. So it's great. And then what time period, I think this is pretty obvious. I don't know why we haven't seen Japan or China in in, in that fight. Like, we, sh- sure. I, I think we should have seen a, a feudal Japan or a... Yeah, I don't know. I, that that would be really... Su- I'm really surprised they haven't gone there yet because would, everyone would just love to be a... A samurai? A samurai. Shogun. Um, you know, a samurai assassin or, or a ninja. Maybe maybe the samurai are the Templars in that game. Ooh. And so you could twist it and have the samurai be the, the bad guys, essentially, and then have the ninja be, you know, whatever. So, uh, Or, or the, the, um, the common folk. The townspeople would be the assassins. Because doesn't Assassin's Creed, and forgive me if I'm totally messing this up, but it takes place in the distant future? I don't know if I'd say distant future, but I would say definitely in the future. So because maybe 20 why? 30 years. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say if it was something like 200 years, they could go back to uh, right now. Like today. And go to, you know, downtown Tokyo. Well, and, and I don't know if it was originally planned this way. And then as, as producers left and designers left, they changed the story. But I felt like they were building to the point where Desmond was getting abilities from going into the animus Mm. so he was coming out and he could like do things he couldn't do before because he was it was like muscle memory from reliving his memories Hmm. so i always thought they were building up to have a game where you played as desmond in the future sure and you were doing like a futuristic style assassin's creed i don't know why we never i don't know why we never got well they still could couldn't they Mm. oh we'll leave it at that (laughs) <laughs> so, but yeah, good question. And I love Assassin's Creed, especially Assassin's Creed 2. That's the best Assassin's Creed game I think they ever made. It's complete start to finish. Awesome game. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, not, no. Now you ruined it for everybody. I didn't ruin anything. You no did. one's going to play Assassin's Creed ever again on this whole planet because you just ruined it for them. All right. Our question <laughs> next comes from Nate. This is not the same Nate, by the way. This is not Nate Gate Nate. Not Nate Gate. This is not friend Nate Gate. Nate. This is uh, Nate. Well, somebody named Nate asks, "What is your take on the Nintendo 64 DD in perspective to the standard cartridge storage devices? What do you think the pros of the DD could have had on the gaming industry, or what cons?" This is a fun question. So, for anybody who doesn't know, the 64 DD stands for the 64 disk drive. So it was an add-on that came out in Japan that we never got here, where it was it was uh, it was going to be another player that you'd snap onto the bottom of your 64, and then you had these disc cartridges. So imagine it was almost like a zip disc. Do you remember zip discs from back in the day, like the really big? Do you remember those? They were like extra bigger size floppy disks. No. Oh jeez, I'm old. Okay, so they were they were called zip discs, and they were just higher capacity, like three and a quarter. Uh, three and a half inch floppies so anyway 
The idea, though, was that it was like a CD inside of a cartridge. Mm -hmm. So that it could just hold more data. You could do CD quality sound, stuff like that. Uh... Let's see, what was it? So what what are your take on it? In perspective, the standard card... Okay, so it could do more things better. So originally when the Famicom came out in Japan, it couldn't do a lot of what the NES could do when they brought it out here. In Japan, they had something called the Famicom Disk System, which was the same exact sort of idea, actually, almost. It wasn't, you know, a CD inside of a case. It was essentially just a three and a half inch floppy drive but then that allowed for like more storage on the carts. You could put more stuff in there so you could have better quality sound, you mm-hmm. could stuff like that. Well, when they started bringing the carts over to the US, we had bigger carts anyway than the Famicom. The Famicom games used to be like three inches high. You've seen them at my store before. Yes. NES cartridges are about twice as big as that. Most of the games are just the same size as the Famicom releases, but some were bigger. The ones that were bigger were oftentimes in Japan, those were disc, uh, disc system games. Which is an interesting side note to that was in Japan, like these these discs they had no protection on them, so you could take like there was there was a way where you could actually take your disc to a store, and then they would wipe the game and put a new game on there for you, which never would have worked here because we're such like a nation of getting things as cheap as possible and stealing stuff all the time. It's like a videotape, kind of putting the tape over the little tab so that you can record on it again. Exactly right. So, uh, so. I don't think it would have done anything for the gaming industry if it had come out over here. I think that the DD would have made the 64 capable to do more things, but clearly the technology was going to CD and going to DVD in the future. So the the disk drive system for the N64 would have allowed certain companies to make games better uh, and have better sound and have maybe some better graphics than the 64 did. But it wouldn't have changed anything because it was just stalling. The, it was just postponing the inevitable, which was that carts were on the way out. And the disk drives were the same thing. They were more expensive than just printing CDs. So it never should have... Nintendo never thought of that because Nintendo's always had this idea that their systems are like a fun toy. So on the Super Nintendo, there's an eject button for your cartridges. Mm-hmm. They only put that on there because they wanted it to be like a fun thing where you could press eject. Because you can just grab a Super Nintendo game and rip it out of there. I don't even know most people don't <gasps> use the eject button. You're not button. supposed to do that. Whatever, babe. I'd do it. I'm a rebel. I'm a rebel. Oh. <laughs> so, so you don't have to press the eject button. You just rip the thing out and it's totally fine. It's oh, actually designed to be that way. That makes me really uncomfortable it's to totally think about fine. that. Totally fine. And so Nintendo had this thing, though. They liked cartridges because it was like a toy. It was a plastic thing. You know, you had fun putting it in. CDs felt like they were more for adults only. You had to take care of them. You had to be careful. That sort of thing. Your hands had to be big enough to not it, touch the sun. Yeah, you, could, touch you the couldn't top touch the, the disc. And, and that's why PS1 games are in such rough shape, because all of us that had a PS1 as our first CD-based system, we had no idea that we couldn't just... Well, you can't just put it on the floor and step on it later, like my <laughs> Nintendo games? Okay. Ooh. So... Really, that's kind of... The the disk drive was basically that. And it was just... I don't know. It was just kind of worthless. And that's why they didn't release it here. They knew it wouldn't sell. And it was too late in their life. And there is some really cool stuff. You know, there's a... They could have probably done something with Final Fantasy. But Square was so impressed by CD technology on the PlayStation 1. And the quality of music and the full motion video they could do. That they were like, we're not ever going to use cartridges or disk systems ever. Ever again. And yeah. so that's why, you know, Final Fantasy became the powerhouse it was uh, for the PlayStation console. So, but yeah, uh, but the cons to it, I don't think there would have been any cons if it had come out, but Nintendo might have spent more money on it. And if it had flopped, Nintendo might have changed, they could have changed strategies earlier on uh, instead of trying to chase the, the Xbox and the PS2 down with the GameCube. And, you know, I don't know, they could have changed their strategy, but. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I think it was just one of those things that it wouldn't have mattered if it came out or not. Just if it had come out, Nintendo would have less money in their pocket than they have today. Okay. Um, our next question is from uh, Dominic. Do you think after making an appearance in the next Skylanders and an HD re-release of its core games, that Naughty Dog has a shot at bringing back Crash Bandicoot, or is it too late? Uh, well, it depends who has the license to that, and I'm pretty sure it's Activision, and I'm pretty sure if it's not Activision, it's Vivendi, and Vivendi and Activision had kind of a rough split, so clearly this is coming out, which is great, and if you played Uncharted 4, this is a a spoiler technically, but it's in the first five minutes of the game, you, you know, like, 
Drake sits down to play game, you know. Um, and he's really not good at yeah, it. Yeah, he's not good at it. And in the game you play is Crash Bandicoot. And, like, you play a part of that level in that game, so they're already making you feel nostalgic. It's just great. It was really nicely done. So that was a neat touch. I don't know how they got authorized to do that. You know, whatever. So now, though, if Activision is in control of it, which makes me think they are since they put it in the Skylanders game, which is by Activision, if they have the license, they could realistically allow Night Dog to make another game. However, Activision is not typically one to publish exclusives on a console so i could see naughty dog making it and then if naughty dog makes it they might have to release it on xbox and on playstation now now playstation doesn't own naughty dog they're they're their own company but they are what's known as like a second party developer so you have first party developers which are companies that are actually owned by sony so anything made by sony is considered first party well you typically only hear about first party and third party third party is typically completely exclusive from the company that owns it and they make games for them. But then there's this kind of middle of the road, which is a second party and second party is basically, they're not owned by the company, but they make exclusive games for that company. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what Naughty Dog is right now. They only make games for Sony systems. They don't even put them on PC. Like they straight up just make it for Sony systems. So I don't know. It's a good question. I think if it's successful, Activision will have to look at bringing Crash back. But will that be with Naughty Dog? Probably not. I just can't see Naughty Dog dedicating the team to do it. I think that they're working on uh, their new projects, and they just—it's almost too low, low key for them. It's almost too low time. Small Maybe they time for need them. that. I could see, <laughs> more, yeah. More importantly, I could see uh, a Jack and Daxter reboot because Sony owns the licenses to that. So that'd be a lot easier for them to do. And that would be a bigger game. I don't know if they would make a Crash Bandicoot game because there's not really, unless they create a whole, like a, they, they make epics, you know, like they, they make epic games. That's what I was going games. to say. It, it, Crash Bandicoot isn't really. It's it, not their style anymore. Yeah. No. And it's that, it, it's not the same type of gameplay that they're used to developing. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they do these story driven you know, these highly narrative, story-driven, amazing gaming experiences. And Crash just isn't that anymore. So I, I don't think they would get it. But I, I think Activision will do what they do, and they will find anything they can make of money, and then they milk it. And I think Crash I think Crash will be considered in that. So, yeah. Sure. Okay. And lastly. Last question from Tabitha. What games are you excited for that are coming out soon? What are you excited for first? Aw, yay, I get to answer questions. (laughs) I am excited, obviously, as people who have listened to this before know my love of The Legend of Zelda. But I am looking very much forward to The Breath of the Wild, Mm -hmm. which is coming out. Uh, I'm not excited... I'm not letting myself get too excited yet because the gameplay is going to be drastically different from what I've seen of playthroughs and demos and such. Um, but I'm excited to give it a try and see what, what happens, and it will be certainly a, a fun experiment. I'm also excited for Persona 5, which is coming out very yep. soon. Yep. And the newest South Park game, South Park The Fractured Butthole. <laughs> that game's going to be so good. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say I actually just picked up The Rise of the Tomb Raider for the PS4 edition. I've been waiting for that for quite a while. I want to play that badly because the first one is great. The Tomb Raider reboot that they did I, when I played that on PS3 was just awesome. I thought it was going to be kind of an uncharted ripoff, but it wasn't. It was great. And then I'm eagerly awaiting in uh, two weeks, is, like a week and a half, is the Dark Souls 3 DLC, for the, the first DLC for Dark Souls 3. Eh, you know, other than that, I'm kind of, eh, on stuff this year. Like, I don't I don't really have anything else. Like, I was really excited for Deus Ex and World of Warcraft Legion, and both of those have come out now. And so now it's, you know, Gears of War 4 just came out. I want to play that. So I don't know. There's a whole bunch of stuff, but yeah, that that's kind of. I'm actually. I feel like this is a weak Christmas. Uh, the PlayStation VR technically launches. I could go to Best Buy in seven minutes and buy it. As of the recording of this podcast, <laughs> uh, and, and I kind of want to play with that, but I'm I'm trying to restrict myself because I don't think it's gonna be that great. So I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to hold my, hold myself down. I had one pre-ordered at Best Buy, but it was the whole kit for five hundred bucks, and I was like, eh. 
<laughs> and I canceled it because I didn't need it. And yeah, so yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to personally. And if there's anything you guys are looking forward to game wise, we'd love to hear from you as well. And as always, you can uh, private message me or post on the game trade wall any questions you might have for next week's episode. We usually take questions all the way up through Wednesday, Wednesday night, and I'll put a few Facebook posts up about it too. Or you can tweet us at Game Talk Radio or at Game Trade Greg. Both of those are my Twitter handles, one's for the store, one specifically for this, but whatever. And uh, as always, we appreciate you listening. And I'm going to try again to not forget the outro music. <laughs> <laughs> and we appreciate you guys. I'm Greg. I'm Jen. And have a great night or day. I don't know. Why did I say night? Bye. Just I'm just going to say goodbye. Have a great life. Have a day. Have a day. Have a well. We're gonna have a good day. Just have a day. Have have a day that's better than the day before the this one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Bye.